It's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How's it going? I've done a painting today, Ed. Oh, cool. I have not done any sort of painting since my art GCSE. Anyone <clears throat> who knows its graphic detail, I give it to myself biographically. I'm 30 years old. So that goes to show you how long it's been. And when lockdown happened, I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to try and do something for myself that isn't through a screen and <clears throat> isn't going to make me go all tweaked and try and be like amazing at something because I am not just something for me that's creative that I don't have to be too precise with and I made myself a really banging postie because I think that's important Mm. before endeavouring on any kind of art uh, adventure is proper fuel Yeah, and like an hour and a bit just melted away really nicely stuck on radio <clears throat> six because i am a stereotype and it was really nice so i recommend i know i know we normally do recommend at the end do cultural <laughs> stuff but my just sort of like general ambient do something for the sake of it and that you like it who knew that that was nice so yeah that's my top tip is how are you ed good yeah if we're talking about picking up things that we used to do i've been trying to relearn french this week Oh, la la. Yeah, the last time I did any French in any serious way was year six, no, year nine, um, because uh, the way that it worked in my school is you had to do French through uh, year seven, eight, and nine. So yeah. that was when I was like 14, 13, I think I probably was the last time I really bothered with any French and then when I went to start doing GTSEs, um, you could pick a different language, so I did German for two years. Stimmt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I enjoyed much more, uh, but also haven't done in uh, nineteen years. Get us so, going uh, going right back, huh? Yeah. Getting nostalgic. Um, exactly, yeah. If we're talking about nostalgia, I had two moments this week where I really felt because I don't generally feel old because i'm like i'm only 33 so it's not like the old terribly old yeah. i mean old, old in like you know comparing my life to jesus because obviously that means the end's coming <laughs> but um in comparison to the average human lifespan 33 not that old but very occasionally you'll get that thing where you know you'll you'll be reminded of how much time has elapsed in your own life and the one for me yesterday was that um bbc radio 2 was playing in the background and because I'm, I'm visiting my parents for the weekend because it's my mum's birthday uh, and we're all being very careful and remaining you know far away from each other and besides which like all three of us have been so- socially isolating in our respective uh homes anyway so it's like you know uh, so i think we're all right on that front but they had radio two blank and uh dynamite te played by Ms. Dynamite, yeah. and I was like, God, this song's nearly 20 years old <laughs> in 2002. And I just remember just, that just being like such a strange thing to think about, just how huge she was at the time, like what a cool celeb that she was. And she's still, you know, great. She still like does good music and everything, but there was like such a time where 
in the lead up to her winning the Mercury and everything that she was this like unescapable force in pop culture. And the other thing was I watched one of the latest episodes of uh, Consylvania. The yes, that those lads down the road from me. Yes, wonderfully lo-fi, Glasgow-based. Oh well. Well, they film it. I think they film it in Rob's house in Helensborough, but my stepdad's yeah. house is a stone's throw from them, I believe. So west of Scotland, uh, dead. We're fine. Yeah, I mean, like used to be Glasgow-based. Now one of them, I think, is still in Glasgow. But anyway, this is splitting hairs. Like lo-fi Scottish uh video games show and one of the reviews from this episode that they most recently made was of final fantasy 7 remake and in it uh rab is walking around the massive garden of his house and showing off all of the stuff he's like got in like their allotments and everything and uh he mentions that he his daughter is filming it and his daughter, I think, is now like he mentions that she's thirteen, and I remember, <laughs> oh, I remember watching Consylvania in like two thousand and seven when his then baby daughter was in a video yeah, where way. he was like he was like Master Chief, like leaving, and it was it was meant to be like Halo filmed by Ken Loach, <laughs> <a> sketch, <laughs> like, so he was like Math Master Chief telling his wife they had to go go and finish the fight or whatever. And yeah, that was just kind of like, wow, that's a lot of time has passed. His, his daughter's now filming Consylvania bits and writing poems about Cloud. Uh, yeah, yeah um, or rap, raps about the, the, the cast of Final Fantasy VII. But that that was quite a nice one. It's like, oh, like, he seems like a really nice dad, does Rob, Rab Florence. Just like a generally very nice guy. He, um, he is. I've had minor chats with him and he's super friendly. Yeah, children are going to do that. They just grow. Mm. It's very rude. Yeah. Like the progress they make <laughs> since two thousand and seven versus me, not having that. <laughs> but you know, fine if they must. Happy birthday, Ed's mum. <laughs> yeah, I keep getting like glimmers of that. What was it for me? I think so much. I think we were sort of skirting around this. Oh, oh, a fair while ago, Ed, when we were doing um last year, of course, a lot of years from 99 turned 20 and mm. that really got me where I was like wait I'm 29 and because that being about nine and starting to be more conscious of what I liked in films yeah. and being more aware of big films or like they'd come out on VHS a couple of years later so I'd be 11 and I'd be sort of like more like more inclined to watch more adult stuff yeah all of that kind of Ooh, yeah, Miss Dynamite he, she's always known. Sister of Akala. Like, what a, what a couple of uh, siblings, eh? But yeah, she was definitely, mm. I think that's, it's that weird thing that I keep trying to remind myself in lockdown of, is that it's very odd, this kind of, and, and it always is, like, who knew? Fame, fickle, ha, hot take, Emily. But that thing of what you said there, of like how ubiquitous she was around like Mercury winning the Mercury stuff. Totally. I was thinking about this about David Gray recently. Oh, yeah. How like David Gray was like huge. You know, there was that kind of turn it was that kind of like millennium turning point for certain like artists. And it was interesting because not a lot of them were like I don't remember them being like really young. There was kind of like a a shift towards more like singer songwriters around that mm. time. But now yeah there's and they're still going. Like mm. as far as I'm aware, they're still plugging away, but there's not that kind of like there's still only so much kind of particularly in music i think it has a much higher turnover than film and acting mm. I, I think also in terms of like 
I also think about Miss Dynamite was like, I think as when she first like broke big, I she seemed like impossibly grown up an adult to me because I would have been like 14, 15 or whatever. And it's one of those things where you're looking at, you know, looking at people's ages like, oh, she was like five years older than me. Yeah, it, it's, it's those kind of five years, isn't it? Mm, I saw, yeah. um, I think it's just come out on Twitter like over this weekend. Have you seen Anthony Hopkins' message to the graduating class of 2020? I did not know. Oh, Ed, it's a treat. It has some really questionable graphics at the end. I'm like, didn't necessarily <laughs> need that, Tony. But he's being very sweet and very him. His cat's don't feature, so obviously, like, points removed from me. Um, <clears throat> score down there. Um, but he is talking about, like, the nature of time and getting a bit, like, you know... He, he manages to not veer into too much, kind of, like, cosmic ordering, the secret bullshit, but he is talking <clears throat> about, like, you know... It's okay. Things are going to happen. I imagined this life for myself when I was younger and here I am now. And I think there's something quite sweet because I think we all need some comforting. I certainly, hello, I'm painting again. I'm in this like weird whirlwind of like nostalgia and fear of being even more behind than I was before. Because I think there is something about the millennial condition that we do feel like we're playing catch up. And I, <clears throat> and I felt this recently, Ed, like, I totally get that like oh my god you know they seem so like grown up and then you realize like oh my god at the time they were like 26 Britney Spears keeps doing this at the moment like posting like throwbacks of and I'm and I work out with my really crunchy mental math like oh god she's 17 (laughs) how how was that allowed then how did I do anything at all I'm fine I'm totally fine yeah but but um Otherwise, I think in terms of like what I've been up to culturally this week, the main thing for me has been watching a lot of old Rita Hayworth movies um, because I, like a lot of people, I subscribe to a few streaming services, which is great because it means, oh, you know, you have a lot of movies readily available at your fingertips that you can watch, but it also means that you get paralysed by choice because there's so many things to watch. And the Criterion channel is in some way the best version of that because they have so many great movies from like all over the, the history of the medium and also there's just so many great movies over the history of the medium so it's hard to choose so i have <laughs> to make it a little easier on myself i've started just watching all of the stuff they have that's expiring at the end of each month i've essentially created movie for myself <laughs> by just seeing like these these movies are going to disappear at the end of the month so you need to watch them all now so I've just been watching a load of Rita Hayworth movies and it's been quite nice because they are these like, the at least the ones I've seen have been these like really fizzy musicals with names like You'll Never Get Rich and You Were Never Lovelier, which are like proper 1940s film <laughs> film titles. Um, just kind of bits and phrases of songs that don't really have anything to do with the plot. It's just a nice, just a nice phrase that you can have there. And, you know, seeing her placed opposite the stars of the day like you know fred astaire which who she dances with in a couple of them gene kelly who she co-stars with in cover girl where they're absolutely fantastic with each other or james cagney in the strawberry blonde where she has like a supporting role and it's just really really nice getting this side to her that i hadn't really seen because the only things i'd seen her in were like gilda and the lady from shanghai which are very much kind of like dark noirish stuff which obviously was like a big part of her career as well but in terms of what made her like this bombshell you know 
pin-up icon who was the one of the biggest stars of the 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 for like the 40s and 50s those were kind of the ones that really established her um but also i had that thing that you get where uh you you know you watch a lot of old movies and you kind of think oh you know i want to learn more about this star and reading about rita hayworth's backstory (laughs) she's kind of like oh she had a really terrible life (laughs) (laughs) particularly her childhood which i won't go into here because it's deeply upsetting but um yeah if people want to read her wikipedia but yeah trigger warnings are plenty her childhood was not very good um but yeah like and that it has that that thing where on the one level you kind of think I really wish I didn't know this because this is like a, just a thing that will uh, will kind of keep cropping into my head whenever I'm watching a movie that she's in. But also, it kind of complicates your relationship to the art in a in an interesting way, where you know the fizz and the light and the joy that you see from her dancing and everything, and the clear sense of escape that she gets from it, really does you know make that all the more poignant so those movies suddenly have a different feel to them in a way that you know is very bittersweet but at the same you know it's if you want to watch old movies and know about them you kind of have to dig into these details i guess it's hard to watch them and not you know have that context i guess this is just explaining the the appeal of like you must remember this (laughs) at this point Mm. Uh, how about you what's your uh, cultural outlook been this week this week ed i have taken in focus chunks because the lockdown brain fog is real and I wanted to give it my full attention so brace yourself it's going to sound horribly pretentious but I actually don't give a shit because it's exactly exactly my kind of thing Jacques Rivette's four hour masterpiece and Grand Prix Golden Palm Can winner 91 La Belle Noiseuse La Belle Noiseuse follows it's i mean it's good for your french ed it's good for your french it is the frenchest film i've ever seen and i Mm. love it because it's just so encapsulates this very particular type of people and it's self-aware of that yes it's four hours long there is a shorter cut available but honestly it's the only film i've seen other than maybe lord of the rings that justifies and earns its running time because it happens over a few days it's incredibly subtle everything that is featured feels like vivid and important there is no filler it begins with an english couple of holiday makers and they're just like you know one of them shocked at like how french these people are <laughs> the other one says she's like what do you expect which is great because i'm like okay i'm in if we're if we're aware that these people are kind of like even just that, you just know these people are a very specific type of people. Rivette is not interested in trying to, like, it was just enough, right? It's like saltiness at the start, and then you can just, like, really dive into these people. And, you know, it's just full of people having, like, aperitifs and luscious fruit and, like, beautiful long dinners in in the summer heat. And everyone's, like, talking about Paris or, like, oh, I have to be in Grenoble in three hours. And all of the like trousers are really high and belted and they're either like Levi's or fucking Geno's. That aside, it is also a really amazing meditation about art <laughs> and muses and power dynamics and, and kind of shift of things. Um, so that was great. I've also finally finished Hollywood mm-hmm. um, and I had a really interesting chat with a friend of mine who is Chinese American who basically said, thing, you know, it didn't really 
massive spoilers for Hollywood, by the way, everyone. Um, didn't really justify the anime Wong kind of, it was really beautiful, the speech that she has and that she is kind of like recognised in this. I mean, we go like properly into reimagined history, like Overdrive in the last like episode. Um, but it still didn't earn that because she is one of the characters who's seen the least. And I was like, ah, good point. So it doesn't even really manage within this Fantasia to give her much <laughs> more, even though I think it tries to focus on like, well, really, it's the director, the producer and the writer. Like, you know, the actors are sorted by the by, apart from the one white male. But I just bawled my eyes out in the last episode. And I don't know what, whether it's more the circumstances that we're in. And it was just nice to see something like unabashedly hopeful. And it is a hot mess, but it's the hottest of messes and the messiest of things. And I still really recommend it. I don't think there's anything else quite like it. I don't think there will be anything else quite like it. But I really enjoy that it is a limited series. For the love of God, don't make a sequel, please. Like, it works really well just by itself. And in terms of speaking of things that work very well by themselves on Netflix, I also had a bash at uh, Kimmy Schmidt versus The Reverend. Um <sighs> which is, I think, apart from Puss in Boots and Bandersnatch, the only interactive thing Netflix have done. Yeah, it's something I think they want to experiment with more, but they kind of, it kind of has to be that thing that's already tied to some big IP. So, yeah, so it makes sense that they would do it with Black Mirror, where, you know, it makes sense for the themes of that show. But also it's interesting them doing it with Kimmy Schmidt, where, you know, that show had resolved itself and they just kind of seem to use it as an opportunity to be like how many gags can we fit in if we just provide people with alternate gags depending on what they choose to happen i haven't watched kimmy schmidt in ages right i can't remember at what point i dropped off but i did hmm. and i absolutely loved this i mean hmm. it's incredibly flawed but nice to see various people pop up daniel radcliffe is so game and so good and really sweet and daft and funny like perfect perfect casting and i think there's something sweet in that like he clearly had a sort of childhood maybe like i think there's a bit of meta stuff going on in terms mm. of like you get that he understands how it might be difficult to not really have your childhood anyway i don't know but he's a delight lots of other people pop up it i think the interactivity is still a bit like i'm neither here nor there that wasn't mm. really and I think it's weird with Kimmy because it just doesn't, there wasn't really anything of consequence. I think the thing about Bandersnatch is it totally makes sense because it's baked into the whole idea of like playing games and pass. And I thought there was a really beautiful like mirroring, ha, a black mirroring ha, between that. And I really, really enjoyed Bandersnatch and was very excited for interactivity off the back of that. Puss in Boots, of course, makes sense because interactivity for a kid's IP, of course. Why wouldn't you? Mm. Like, that kind of branches out, you know, keeping kids more occupied and immersed in things um, rather than back in the day with Dora the Explorer where, you know, she'd just talk to you and you'd talk back. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't think this really added anything for me and it didn't really seem to have much impact on what happened. But you know what? There's just some really cracking jokes in it. Mm. And I ended up just like watching it and kind of kicking back and not being really that fussed about making choices. So it's interesting that they decided to do this one. And I think it's a little bit of, at the end, there is kind of like a resolution that I did find quite moving, I'll be honest. 
that makes sense casting back on like, oh, this is a character who her formation she didn't have because she had that taken away from her. And Kimmy is just like such a fucking patron saint of lockdown, right? Like, <laughs> and it reminded me of like, she's like, you can bear anything for 10 seconds. And it's this idea of like, you know, her sunniness and her essentially arrested development is is kind of baked into her personality and I don't know I think it's such an interesting it made me want to go back and watch Kimmy Schmidt I, and you know what Ed, the jokes are just really good the interactivity mm. I'm not that fussed about but it's really funny yeah it's always nice to get some more of that premium uh Tina Fey content yeah she also has a quite a fun cameo at the beginning but <laughs> uh, also in terms of uh the the way we live now um the content uh, i watched the mr show zoom uh reunion yesterday ah! which uh is no use to anyone hearing this because by this point it would have expired and people can't watch it anymore because <laughs> they only made it available for like three days which was fun uh the sketches are a mixed bag and also like it's just the limitations of trying to do sketches via zoom where you can't really have that much in the way of visuals is a you know kind of a problem but they're all like such game performers it's so fun seeing them together and the thing that really made it for me was the bits in between sketches where they were just talking to each other and you really quickly see how certainly if anyone's ever like read about mr show like the the great book uh what happened that um came out a couple of uh, like 18 years ago at this point which was a really nice summation of the history of the show or if you've uh, as as i have listened to the audio commentaries on the dvds which were kind of like they're basically like a prequel to the comedy bang bang podcast because <laughs> <laughs> it's like so many of the key people just showing up on it but if you kind of like study that you do kind of see a lot of these dynamics like uh existing at the time like you know scott Ackerman and brian persane because they were younger than everyone and they joined later being these kind of like errant kids that um B- uh, bob odenkirk was always telling to just shut up and do the damn work or whatever and there's a little bit of that in their zoom calls like early on when they're just introducing themselves uh scott ockerman changes his zoom background to the distracted boyfriend meme <laughs> where his head is where the uh the beautiful girl is so it looks like the guy's just checking him out and just like clearly just trying to distract everyone and annoy them and when it's his turn to introduce himself he just kind of starts saying like yeah you know i've got comedy bang bang which everyone says is kind of this generation's mr show and also next generation's mr show which i think is kind of uh, disrespectful to all of you guys but you know it is true and you know he kind of still has that sense of being kind of like the naughty little kid of the writer's room even though at this point he's very well established and very successful so it was fun seeing that sort of stuff kind of bubble back up to the surface and then kind of give each other shit which is just a nice thing to see when you look at these people who have such a a long career of having known and worked with each other mm, i used to love that that was part of why i loved um the commentaries on the futurama dvds because you just get the oh, sense yeah. of like oh these people really enjoy working with each other yeah, I think the, the Simpsons ones as well were great. Mainly, I just loved like all the ones where they would get Conan back in to talk about mm-hmm. the things that he wrote, and he, he was quite. He seemed to really enjoy you know being back in that room, with those guys, and even though he's obviously by that point you know he got his own show and very high status, him having to come back in and talk to these guys who were his boss or his colleagues, you know, like it's it makes for an interesting dynamic. Uh, so we'll go on to the news this week. This is basically just kind of a news episode this week because. 
we there was no like single subject that really kind of stood out to us as that we really wanted to talk about this week and then also yesterday just a load of stories came out that suddenly uh we felt we wanted to talk about um i think at first off uh, you know you're talking about hollywood earlier so let's talk about the entertainment weekly lgbt special cover issue that was doing the rounds the other day which yes has been much discussed online if you want to google it uh, to get a visual reference then you know please go ahead and do so it's it's quite the thing it's a collection of lots of you know lgbt celebrities past and present done in a style that is not terribly flattering to anyone um, in the sense that one of them Maybe Rod H- Rock Hudson, but may also <laughs> not be. Um, it's very hard to say. I saw people say that it might be Tony Curtis, which I think is probably, if it was, would be a hell of a scoop to put into um, yeah. the thing that we could cover. Um, and Billy Eichner joked about it being him, so that gives you a sense of the range of people that it could be. It may, it mainly there's one particular element which we'll discuss in a second about it that's just really, really funny <laughs> and strange. But for me what the image recalled were on the one hand those uh, pictures that like kevin smith always posts whenever someone dies and he posts a picture of like um james and bob crying at their grave where it's just kind of like there's just this really weird kind of saccharine thing that doesn't really make any sense or really have any meaning to it or or that one painting that you often see doing the rounds where it's like um, the cat characters from Star Wars in a band where Darth Vader's playing guitar and jumping in the air. <laughs> like, this is kind of like this weirdly celebratory thing that also is like completely hollow because this is just like a dumb thing that someone did because they thought it looked awesome. But when you look at it with even a bit of critical thinking, you think this feels kind of weird and hollow. Weird and hollow is right, Ed. The way that it came into my sphere of consciousness mm-hmm. is that I follow Cynthia Nixon on Instagram because of course I do because I'm a Miranda stan the, till the end you know and it just said like oh so pleased to be represented mm-hmm. in this spread and I looked at it and I was like and because I was doing that classic kind of scrolling through Instagram and not really properly picking up on what I was looking at just quite an immediate like oh like that and then I was like, oh, wait, so she's dancing with Dietrich. But that's mm. not, am I, are my eyes wrong? Because I, I, I'm oscillating between wearing contact lenses and glasses. And I was like, do I just not have my glasses on at the moment? Fascinating insight into my life, guys. And, and then I realised, no, I've got my contact lenses in. This is high definition. This is what it's meant to look like. And I just... <laughs> And I thought, God bless Cynthia Nixon for being just so, like, you know, her her sort of foray into politics and whether she'll come back again, but like just being so fucking diplomatic about something that is one of the most horrific things I've ever seen. Why now? Like, it's such a weird thing to commission. Um, you're right. There's no right or reason, rhyme or reason to it. Like, the eyelines are very chaotic. I'm like, who's looking at who? <laughs> Did no one learn about perspective or proportion? Like, I mean, I know I've only just got back into painting and I'm not saying I could do any better, but really, maybe I could. Yeah, it's just, I'm just looking at it now and you're right, the eyelines are just so weird. 
they're all just kind of looking into the middle distance for no real reason. Um, the pairings are just kind of like they sort of make sense in some cases, like Freddie Mercury kind of extending a hand to Janelle Monet, but also then like there's John Waters and um, Dan Levy, where he's kind of got his arm around his shoulder and they're both looking in entirely different directions. It's it's really bizarre, but I think the real star of it, <laughs> as pointed out by um, Adam J. Musa from Eater, uh, is the brick that is just there in the bottom corner between George Takei and Little Nas X. It's was it wait what are the what are the ghosts in the back? Oh, okay, that's just like a in the top. There's like I thought it was like ghosts or like those little um, spirit demons from. Princess Mononoke, but it's just like a reflection of the light that doesn't exist. But yes, there's a there's a tiny little brick hidden in the bottom corner. The true LGBT hero. Let's not worry about who threw the first brick at Stonewall. Brick. Brick is the hero. Oh my god. I think if this had been a thing that existed in the world prior to the Met Gala, I think mm. the, the, the camp Theme would have gone a lot better. Yeah, I was just just in my head, I just imagined someone walking up dressed as a brick and thinking, what a great outfit that would be for someone to wear to the Met Gala. <laughs> just go dressed as a, a day glow print, uh, uh, pink brick. <laughs> yeah, the other thing that this reminds me of is the uh, <laughs> the Onion cartoons that they published, you know, where they have their like satirical take on satirical cartoons where everything's labelled and super obvious and also doesn't make sense. <laughs> like, that's what the inclusion of a brick in a celebration of LGBT culture <laughs> really reminds me of. A, tr- a truly bizarre <laughs> cultural object. <laughs> I got a great, a great deal of enjoyment out of this week. Um, also something that gave me a great deal of enjoyment in a non-ironic sense was Margot Martindale's Random Rolls uh, interview in the AV Club. The uh, AV Club do this feature called Random Rolls where they just, you know, talk to a actor and they just go through their filmography and just get them to tell stories about this it's often even as you know the uh, the editorial staff at that site have changed over the years and the focus has changed and you know not to get into too much value but a lot of like good people have left that site over the years but like random roles has always been just one of the highlights of that of that site and of the print publication back when it was still in print and Margot Martin Dale is like a perfect choice to it so much so that this is the second time she's done it she previously did it in 2011 and as the intro to it points out like there is something really nice about speaking to her about it again because the last nine years of her career have seen her do so much more stuff and like really raise her profile and it's just really wonderful hearing her talk about or reading you know there's a video and a, a text one but um seeing her talk about working on Bojack Horseman, working on The Americans, which were like such high watermarks for her, like in terms of, um, I think, critical response, certainly the The Americans won her like a few Emmys. And I think Bojack, you know, with the, the whole notion of the phrase character actress Margot Martindale has like really cemented her as this pop culture figure in a way. And it's really nice hearing her talk about that experience. She's just such a class act and so much fun and just hearing how like just nice she is. She has great words for everyone, but I think there's kind of like a saltiness and a sassiness to her that I really appreciate. And it just reading mm. that made me realize like, oh God, we didn't mention her in our favorite actors and it other people started coming to mind. Like I just texted you sort of like without much context. 
in all caps, Regina Hall. Because <laughs> I realized, like, we were like, oh no. So an, an ongoing feature might be Emily and Ed suddenly remember everyone else that they love <laughs> in terms of their favorite actors. It's such a dream to read. And I think she's just someone who doesn't take herself too seriously. And then because of that, but then, but then doesn't shit on acting. I really love that. Like actors who are like, oh, well, I mean, there's a fair amount of perspective to be had to be like, well, you know, I'm not being shot at, but she still like, I don't like actors who just like dismiss it being like, oh, it's just really silly, isn't it? I'm like, no, it's not. It, you know, you're, you're part of a cog in, a, in an empathy generating machine. That's a lovely thing. And I like that in her, that she kind of just seems to be having a whale of a time with it all. Mm. And I think that's, oh, yeah. the, that's the balance I like. And it just made me think of, you know, who, again, in that sort of film Twitter way, who else has the range? Like, she can be both um, character actress Margot Martindale and eviscerate herself, but in, but in a way that actually just affirms how brilliant she is mm-hmm. and manage to, like, break hearts in that final segment of Paris Chatem, where she's again, oh, yeah. good for your French head. Um, mm-hmm. This could be you, Margot Martindale in Paris. Yeah, I, I just think she's great. She gives me so much like, just reading that, I felt like she was in the room with me, like the way that she giggles about things and yeah, just really game and open. Love her. Yeah, the um, I don't often look at the video segments on the AV Club, except when you know they used to do their um covers series which was always a joy um but yeah the video component of that in uh, interview is so great like it is really fantastic just hearing her give the answers and responding to it and just really enjoying the chance to talk about you know reminiscing about being in new york in the 70s and things like that which is also very cool yeah she she does have that kind of like i've lived in this city forever feel to her which is really interesting when you consider that she often plays people who are not even remotely new yorks <laughs> another thing that gave me a lot of uh, a, a lot of was a lot of fun this week even though uh, probably not intentionally were the clips that were circulated of the animated finale to the tv show the blacklist which is a kind oh of, boy a, a kind of like pulpy serialized crime show sort of thing with uh, james spader which has been running for years and years and years now and as a lot of things you know it was interrupted by the coronavirus outbreak they were in the process of filming it when the they had to shut down and so they stumbled across the solution of having some parts of the finale be computer animated and you know (laughs) when when i initially saw like headlines saying that blacklist finale to be animated i i thought oh is this like maybe going to be a fringe thing you know because fringe did an animated episode where it was justified by the fact that i think you know one of the characters does lsd or something and so then it's <laughs> justified that it's been a while since i watched it but there was a reason there was like an a, a, an in-universe reason for why the episode was like animated and this one it literally is just like no this was the best we could come up with and it's super strange the clips from it are so weird it doesn't feel natural at all and yeah i don't want to kind of like harp on them you like they're they're making the best of a very bad situation but also the best of that bad situation was very bad (laughs) it just looks really it just looks really really terrible and just is so because there's there there isn't any kind of rhyme or reason to it in terms of the scenes shifting from 
the footage they have to the animated stuff, it just looks so weird and alien. What's real anymore, Ed? <laughs> <laughs> alien is right. It's such a... That, that it is just kind of there, and you're like... I, I watched it, and I was like, I don't really see what this scene has actually... Why, why does it have to be there? It's not mm-hmm. one where something really crucial had to happen. Like, it could have been explained away, I think, in a... a, a uh, it, and just thinking about, like, the, f- the first major workaround in my head that I remember is Oliver Reed dying on Gladiator. Yes. Yeah. And how beautifully they changed it and I think made it better. Because I, I don't think he was meant to die in the original no. script. But it has a resonance that for the character to die, I mean, obviously it's not a good thing for someone. It's it's always unfair when someone dies. Mm. But that that was done with like dignity, <laughs> I think. <laughs> and like an appreciation for making something look good. Whereas this again, it's just like and I think at a time I don't think anyone has got like I'm like leave it out but because I I don't think anyone's going to mind if you miss stuff. Yes, like bless them they tried. But I really kind of wish they had. I wonder how <laughs> and I and I wonder how people who really love the show are going to feel about it. Not positive by the reactions I saw just to like cuz I just tweeted about it and then I got someone like replying to me about it just saying like how this was like just just how they thought it was like a really terrible choice and everything as opposed to just the the the, the unideal thing of just being like well we'll just not make the episode <laughs> and just leave it as a unfinished until you know we can you know pick things up again um yeah i don't i don't think anyone would be terribly happy with it and it's an interesting historical document i guess in terms of people you know looking back on this this period and then trying to think how did people respond to this how did art respond to this of seeing like one of the possible solutions in the same way that the um i think there's a show called all rise which i believe is a show about judges which did an episode entirely over zoom as kind of a response to this which is very interesting um where you know they just got the cast to kind of set up in their their house obviously the parks and recreation crew did it as well they did like an episode reunion episode for charity over zoom as well so those things are kind of interesting and and this is interesting as kind of a a path that can be taken that maybe should not have been (laughs) but at the same time you kind of think well it's probably easier to do a show that's about like inter-office dynamics you know in a judge's office over zoom than it would be to do something that's kind of like an intense action heavy (laughs) uh action heavy adventure you know serialized crime show or whatever yeah, so like they 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 probably didn't have too many great options. Although personally, I think what they should have done is they should have done what like old movie what uh, studios do for old movies where the footage is lost and just have title cards saying <laughs> what was meant to happen in this scene, like uh like greed or the yeah. uh, the restored version of the fifty four star is born. That would have been that that would be a nice throwback. Uh, another piece of news uh was that the Criterion Collection announced that they are going to put out a box set box set of Agnes Varda's films, all 39 of her features and all of the, I think, all the shorts. It's going to be like just a complete box set of everything that she made, which is, on the one hand, great news. Obviously, she's a great filmmaker who who did a lot of amazing work over the years, and it is very, very cool that all of it will be available. 
but I saw some people on Twitter make that I think a very good point, which is that it also feels like low-hanging fruit for Criterion to basically say, hey, we're going to put out a box set of films by the one, well, not the one, but like one of the few like canonically recognised great female filmmakers uh, uh, whose films are also already fairly widely available. Like, it would have been a more maybe significant choice on their part to do a big box set of a filmmaker who isn't like so white like widely regarded as kind of like this huge figure which is not to take away from you know what a great filmmaker agnes varda was and how deserving she's of that treatment but just like the 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 fact that she is often one of the only ones who is afforded that treatment versus you know the thousands of female filmmakers who don't get that level of attention i love agnes varda not just because of her haircut Mm -hmm. or her uh, love of cats no also important I'm not shallow. I just appreciate the multi-dimensional aspects of incredibly talented people. <laughs> also, speaking of incredibly talented people, um, there were a couple of, of deaths over the last couple of days, which uh, we wanted to talk uh, talk about. Both the announcements came within like half an hour of each other, which was doubly shocking <laughs> because I, I was reeling from one of them when the other one just came in. The first one that at least I heard of was uh, Fred Willard passed away, who, of course, was just like one of the funniest people who ever lived maybe yeah. um, oh actually no there was a third oh god we can't we can't forget jerry stiller as well who passed away this week um yes yeah, so, uh, uh, yeah so, so we lost two of the funniest people <laughs> in american uh comedy history this week uh fred willard who obviously was the star of many or the, a supporting player in many great comedies over the years main probably most famous I mean, it's hard to say what he's most famous for, but for me, I always think of him from his work with Christopher Guest, where he was always such a wonderful part of his ensemble and so very funny, but he was also just someone who worked so much that even though, like when I said to my dad, oh, Fred Willard died, he he asked, oh, who's Fred Willard? And I immediately could list like seven credits for him that I knew he would know him from. Like, you know, oh, he was Phil's dad in um, Modern Family. He was the manager of the folk group in a mighty wind you know he was just one of those guys who had such a breadth of work that anyone who's watched anything funny over the last couple of decades probably were familiar with him and the thing that is consistently brought out in any any of the kind of in memoriams and testimonies about the two of them is not only how funny they were but how nice they were mm, yeah. and like, like everyone saying like how hard they worked but also like messages and, and and things memos that they sort of sent to people who were their assistants or and yeah they just seemed really decent and lacking in ego and cynthia nixon again um on her instagram i'm not always on instagram or particularly <laughs> on cynthia nixon's instagram i just think this is important to bring forward um she spoke about how jerry stiller and Anne mira ended up being kind of like a sort of substitute sort of like show parents for her and how nurturing mm. they were and they just stuck together forever so with Amira then playing her mother-in-law in Sex and the City I thought it was quite an interesting kind of like full circle and Fred Willard I mean my god like before there was Will Ferrell there was Fred Willard and seeing the two of them together in Anchorman is mm. I think I think still really holds out because the thing about Fred Willard is that he managed to kind of be he had this sense that he had he was sort of bemused he had kind of no idea where he was but he knew he was exactly where he needed to be 
that was kind of like the thing that kept all of his characters together and he just I mean I hope there's just someone smashing plates whilst they play the organ at his <laughs> funeral because I think he'd I think he'd love that and again just how nice he was and everyone wanted to work with him and he just hit on a really good way of being mm. like and again, not the sense that he was trying too hard. He didn't have to try too hard. He just managed to kind of affect this kind of bemusement, particularly in the stuff that I saw him in. And he was always kind of working, and he just always seemed like game for anything. Mm. And he also had that wonderful thing where as long as it was funny to him or he thought he could make it funny, he would do it regardless of whether the thing he was working on was considered like high culture. Like he's in yeah. loads of those kind of like scary movie adjacent sick uh, uh um you know kind of terrible parodies he was in loads of sitcoms over the years which were of varying quality but he also like worked a bunch with tim and eric <laughs> and he, yeah. like, he worked obviously with christopher guest who is kind of like you know kind of the creme to the creme of modern american comedy and someone that everyone kind of like looks up to as a kind of an icon uh, and even just like more recently like that one sketch he's in in i think you should leave or his like brief run on review with the Andy Daly show where you know he was a man of tremendous comic stature and like for him to be just constantly looking to for, for work to do that he found fun and interesting and working with people who were so much younger than him and who had clearly grown up idolizing a lot of the work that he'd done uh, speaks volumes about him uh, and also you know the one last thing on Jerry Stiller there was a story doing the rounds in the week where someone who uh, was, I I wish I could remember who it was, but it was a film reviewer who was talking about how he only ever got like one or two letters from people whose work he had reviewed that were positive. And one of them was Jerry Stiller just writing him a letter saying how happy he was about the review that this guy had written of his movie, a movie he was in called The Independent, which came out in the early 2000s. And just like, it was just this really nice short little letter, like talking about how proud he was to have worked on the movie and how, happy he was that someone had liked it i kind of thought oh, that's you know wonderfully classy thing to do and the other death again this one came the news of this one came immediately after uh, fred willard's passing and was just utter, utterly shocking was uh lynn shelton passing away at the age of 54 uh lynn shelton was a independent filmmaker who kind of broke through in the late aughts with the movie hump day and kind of was part of the mumblecore scene but not really you know she was just someone who made lots of these kind of like low skate low stakes but deeply felt comedies like that um your sister's sister with emily blunt and rosemary dewitt which is my favorite of her films i think that's a really wonderful little movie um more recently uh sword of trust which came out last year and got really great reviews laggies with um kira knightley she's someone who who made just a lot of these wonderful small deeply felt and human movies and you and i talk way too much about jonathan demi (laughs) (laughs) but like in thinking about her work and you know being forced to suddenly consider her work and as 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 a finite thing i I suddenly kind of made that comparison i had it's like she was someone who really did seem to have a similar curiosity about the world and about people and that real kind of warmth and generosity to her cast and crew and you know like all of the tributes have been paid to her from people who worked with her about what a great collaborator she was and how she really tried to draw the best out of the people she worked with um i think really speaks to that like you know so many people talk about how it felt like they were joining a family when they went to work on one of her projects this news completely floored me 
Mm-hmm. And I didn't think I was capable of being flawed at the moment. Yeah. It's just devastating. I didn't really sleep last night because I was thinking <laughs> about her and her son and Mark Maron, who mm. she was creatively and recently just romantically involved in. And it was just announced that they were writing a new show together. And yeah, it just seemed like incredibly unfair and not to take away from the horrific loss that those who were close to her and even those who weren't but who worked with her and felt close to her like you say I think she was just willing to bring everyone in Mm. and she did so much amazing work in a really short space of time and she did flip that kind of obsession with people on its head in that she really started to kind of get traction in her mid thirties, mm, yeah, which is incredible. Um, and her films are, and like all of her work, like she, not just her films, but extensive work in TV, Glow and Mad Men, mm. and she just had such a good eye. And uh, Walter Chaw has a really beautiful um, article feature about her on the Decider. Mm. and uh, he calls it and I think the headline is just perfect like Lynn Shelton's quiet generosity allowed her to capture life's most ineffable moments on film she did she just observed and, and was again I sort of mentioned like empathy generating machines because it was it's from Walter Chaw he he spoke about that like Roger Ebert's you know quote that film is so powerful because it can be a machine to generate empathy and that was exactly what she did and that everyone spoke so fondly of her. Yeah, I'm still... This one I really got to me because I think it just was... It's always unfair on the people who love that person who have died. And, you know, for Jerry and, and Mickey and Fred and, and everyone around them. But we were, we were like in their 90s and 80s and in the mid-70s and really only like feeling of how like this getting started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it floored me. Um, and the best thing you can do is is watch her work and listen to her pop up on podcasts and just this kind of uh, just this warmth that came from her. So we end this episode. We end all our episodes of Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? So I haven't been able to focus that much on reading recently, <laughs> which has been quite frustrating. I did sit quite well at. The beginning of lockdown that just kind of faded away but what I did manage to consume in very little time at all but it's incredibly lean and dense which is one of my favorite combinations in literature this is pleasure by Mary Gateskill mm-hmm. it's not exactly light fair Ed, but I think it's such a interesting kind of fictional but clearly based on a lot of people that Mary Gateskill knows and this hypothetical idea of this story that I'm sure is in in one way or another true like other parts of it are all true even if the it's essentially fiction and deeply embedded in kind of like a me too reckoning and I think what it manages to do is like strengthen well and of course maybe it depends on where you stand uh, when you read it, but I think it it strengthens and makes a really interesting 
pace for stories that aren't necessarily as horrific as Weinstein, but are still just as violating. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'm not going to say short and sweet. <laughs> short and sour and very interesting. That's This is Pleasure by Mary Gaston. Cool. I'm going to recommend a movie from 1967, I think it is, uh, directed by Sidney Lumet called The Deadly Affair, which yeah. is currently on the Criterion Collection uh, in America and possibly in the UK uh, on their on their channel. So uh, if you've got access to it, do watch it. It is, and I didn't realise this until I started watching it, an adaptation of the first John le Carre book, Call for the Dead, which is the first to feature the character of George Smiley, who in this uh, version is played by James Mason, although his character name has changed due to rights reasons, but it's basically him playing George Smiley. And it's a really good, really taut little um, espionage mystery thing where uh, George Smiley is uh, implicated in a potential murder and he has to kind of figure out what's who's behind it all and it's very like well constructed and uh, but but the thing about it that is really interesting to me and why i think people should check it out is it's a really interesting case of an american filmmaker coming over to england and making a movie that feels british like it feels like a very palpable depiction of london like it feels like it gets the details right it doesn't feel like you know it's zooming all over the place for no good reason and only showing like the uh, iconic parts of london it feels like something that you know a, a british filmmaker would make but it is stylish in a way that i don't think a lot of british movies often are it's got this great sense of atmosphere that the best le carré adaptations have of you know everything being miserable <laughs> and espionage being a chore but um done in a way that feels really energizing and i think it's really fascinating as a case of you know an outsider coming to england and doing something with our our, our culture and our architecture and the general feel of what london is in a way that doesn't feel like an outsider coming in but feels like a very honest assessment of it in a way and that's really fascinating so i think it's if you've got the criterion channel then then check it out it's and if you're a fan of sting lumet's work and want to see one of his lesser known movies then uh, the deadly affair is well worth your time if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player fm spotify all the usual places you can also rate us review us and recommend us to your friends it's the best way to help us grow our audience you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast we'll be back next time with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me